and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks with Katie and Allie. Usually we would be hanging out just the two of us with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Stephanie Dre. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here and I can't wait to chat about Frances Perkins. (laughs) Well, we can't wait either. So Stephanie is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of historical women's fiction. She's here with us today to talk about her latest book, Becoming Madam Secretary, of course, about Frances Perkins. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, I am a full-time writer of historical fiction, I used to be a lawyer for about 10 minutes, and I like to joke that uh, I decided that if I was going to tell uh, fibs for a living, I should uh, retreat to writing fiction. So, (laughs) but no offense to any lawyers out there. Uh, So I have really sort of married a lot of my interests. I often write about American history and the development of American law. Um, and Frances Perkins was instrumental in that. So amongst the many heroines that I have written about, including Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Martha, and uh, Alexander Hamilton's wife, Eliza, I really, I was really thrilled this time to turn to a 20th century founding mother, Frances Perkins. Perfect. Well, we can't wait to get into her story and her life, but first, we have to talk about the cocktail we made for your book. So ah. it's called Becoming Madam Secretary. And I wanted this to feel kind of like a, because she's in a boys club of, you know, <laughs> yeah. a cab, a presidential cabinet. Um, so I wanted it to be kind of a twist on an old fashioned. So it is bourbon, amaretto, vanilla, simple syrup, and a few dashes of orange bitters. And you garnish it with an orange peel. Cheers. <gasps> She would absolutely love this cocktail because bourbon was her favorite. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and she liked bourbon and branch water was her favorite drink. Branch. I'm not really sure what branch water <laughs> is, but, uh, but it kept coming up. I'm not a big drinker, so I, I haven't tried it out yet. But I think I would rather try your cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We'll have to Google what branch water is. I know. We've been making cocktails for a couple of years. Oh, I've never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> So before we dive too deep into your book, can we set the scene? What time period are we in? And what was life like for women at that time in history? Frances was um, born in the late 1800s. Um, She came of age, uh, was really hitting her stride in the early 1900s. Um, So this was, you know, at the turn of the century, uh, women could not vote. Um, they were still effectively property of their husbands. Um, certainly marital rape was not even, uh, acknowledged as a thing. Um, and one of the very few grounds of, of divorce in New York state was adultery. Um, otherwise you were kind of stuck with each other. Um, women, now we, we talk about how, well, women couldn't work, which is really, not quite true. Um, women of most cla- upper classes were expected not to work. They were expected to be homemakers. Women of lower classes, of course, were trying to survive. And uh, many of them were being forced to take up factory work. 
which really meant that there were a lot of households where parents were not at home. Uh, children had to be taken to the factory floors with them. Uh, and soon the children would have to go to work too. After all, uh, the family needed the money, schools weren't really available, and um, there was no one to watch them. So sort of the fabric of the American family was really unraveling uh, at this time period. So that's the sort of um, atmosphere in which Frances Perkins emerged as a superstar. Mm, yeah. And she is such an interesting character because um, if people don't know, she was the first female member of a presidential cabinet, which is so cool, among many other things that she mm-hmm. did. Um, but how did you find her and what made you decide to write about her life? I'm so glad that you asked this question. Um, when I was growing up, I um, always heard stories from my grandparents. They were um, in some cases, um, my my grandfather on my mother's side was actually an Italian immigrant. My other grandparents were first generation Americans. My my great grandparents um, were alive, my my great grandmother. So I was always hearing about the difficulties of how they had fled persecution in uh, Europe and came to America for a better life. And so unlike Frances Perkins, who was the descendant of American revolutionaries and had lots of stories about, you know, probably going all the way back to the Mayflower, the stories that I heard about, the revolution that mattered to my family was the New Deal. Um, My grandparents came of age during the Great Depression, and they told a lot of stories about the Great Depression. I heard how they had to forage for mushrooms in the woods and hope that they didn't get a poisonous one, Uh, how they had to hunt squirrels and frogs and learn to make that into food. Um, My paternal grandfather's family was living in Rochester, New York, on a a street called Warehouse Street. You can imagine uh, the surroundings were not great. Um, (laughs) They were freezing. Rochester is a very cold place and they didn't have coal. Uh, and they were living all all one big family in a very small apartment, including a grandmother who was, uh, her bones were hurt and she was freezing. And so my grandfather's older brother uh, decided that they couldn't buy the coal. He was going to steal some. And so he made this attempt and he was, uh, he was killed on the train. And I, I think he was about 16 at the time. And my grandfather was maybe 10. Um, And this impacted the whole family. It was such a terrible tragedy. And um, my grandfather actually ended up naming my father, his son, after that that brother who was killed. Uh, So I was raised on all these stories of how hard the Great Depression was, but also how Roosevelt was a great savior, that without him, my family would not have survived, that the New Deal changed the way that uh, new Americans had a relationship with their government, all, all Americans. And, you know, there were all these programs like the um, civilian conservation Corps, which my grandfather joined. Uh, and um, he was able to send back a dollar uh, to his family. And, and that made all the difference in them surviving. So I knew I wouldn't be here if it weren't for these new deal programs. So, you know, they worshiped Roosevelt, not just because of, 
the New Deal, but also because he was their commander in chief. My grandfather's both enlisted right after Pearl Harbor. My grandmother thought he was amazing because when my father was struck with polio, she was able to tell him, you know, if Franklin Roosevelt can be president and he couldn't walk, he had two bad legs, you have only one bad paralyzed leg, you can do anything. So I heard about Roosevelt. I never heard about Francis Perkins, who was really the driving force between so many of the programs um, behind what they what helped them have a good American life, uh, live the American dream, really. So I sort of became aware of Frances Perkins, but only in the way that most people are. You might have seen her in a history book, and she always looks dowdy. She's, you know, she's an older lady. She's wearing a frumpy hat. Uh, she just looks like a, a school marm. And so she doesn't look like a very interesting character. And I never was particularly attracted uh, to write about her. These are very shallow reasons, of course. <laughs> but but then I, I was brainstorming another story with my very good friend and co sometimes co-author, Laura Moy about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And that's when I stumbled over a very young, perky, stylish uh, Frances Perkins. And it made me remember, like, we were all, every dowdy old lady we see has has a past she was a young lady once too and the whole scope of her life and how important she was in American history attracted me to the story and I knew I had to tell it but it really wasn't until I was writing the book that I came to the realization that Frances Perkins is the most important woman in all of American history and I will fight someone over this. So you heard it here first. <laughs> I love it. So before she is kind of involved with the triangle shirtwaist factory yeah. and before she's in the cabinet, you know, she is a science teacher at heart, right? Like she's working as a chemistry yeah. teacher. Can you tell us a little bit about the early days of her life? Oh, I'd love to. So she, um, she was one of the few women who at this time period went on to get a higher education. Her parents sent her to Mount Holyoke. And this was very unusual at the time, especially because she was not from a wealthy family, but they were a proud family. And they had a history. I mentioned that they had revolutionary history. One of the people in their revolutionary past was Mercy Otis Warren, who was um, the only female scholar of the revolution. Um, so they had a history of, you know, learned women in their past, and they were very proud of it. So Frances got to go to Mount Holyoke, where she really wanted to do great things, but wasn't really sure what, how she could do anything important or how she could live up to this legacy. She, um, she majored in chemistry. She knew that she could get a job teaching. So she did um, teach for a short time in Worcester, where her family uh, was based. And then she got a, a job at a fancy academy in Chicago. And she moved there and she was able to buy fancy hats and clothes. And she even went to Europe where, and this is not in the book, she um, she met a young Winston Churchill who made a big enough impression on her at the time that she was able to advise FDR later on when he was like, can we trust this guy? Uh, and, sh and she was able to give her perspective from having met him all the way back <laughs> in those early days when she was a young teacher. 
Um, she was teaching young girls at a young girls academy. And then she started volunteering at John Adams, uh, John Adams, Jane Adams, <laughs> uh, Jane Adams Whole House in Chicago, which was uh, sort of the, the center of a, of a social work movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I also want to get a little bit into her personal life because I find her personal life very fascinating. Um, one thing is that she famously kept her maiden name, but she had to fight for it. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yes. Um, and, and I actually don't go too much into this. Mm-hmm. In the book. I, I touch on it a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, she made her name. Uh, she, she actually was sort of making a reputation as a single woman in New York City. She had you know, we're fast forwarding a little bit. She went from Chicago to working in Philadelphia and then in New York City. Um, and that is where she uh, met her her husband. And when she married, um, she did want to keep her name in part because she had already developed all sorts of professional contacts under that name. I think this is pretty sympathetic to, you know, any modern woman who has started a career even if you really don't like your name and you would like to take your husband's name, it's kind of awkward uh, at work. So, you know, she, she wanted it to keep her name for that reason. And her husband had an even better reason, which was that he had his own political career and he really didn't want it to get messed up every time she made a radical speech, you know, be associated with him. Uh, so he supported it, but um it wasn't easy to do in those times. And so she ultimately had to fight in a court case to keep her maiden name professionally uh, in order to, you know, be able to collect paychecks and everything else. And so she did win that lawsuit. And that's one of the many uh, things that she changed for women in the United States. And and she had accomplished so much that this is not even a footnote in my novel. (laughs) Right, right. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is obviously a huge tragedy. How yeah. does this impact Frances Perkins, who's in New York? And this is happening in New York. So for those who don't know, um, there weren't many work safety rules in the early 1900s. And um, Frances was already working for an organization called the Consumers League. And they were trying to legislate better um, protections for workers. So Francis was already sort of engaged in trying to reduce work hours for people and make sure that people uh, could have seats if they were working at a particularly uh, draining job that would damage them and, and, and making sure that there were fire escapes. There were a number of fires and she had already been aware that the women at this particular factory were already complaining, saying this is not a safe place. They they tried to strike. The police did not take their side. They actually took the side of the, the factory owners and ended up beating a number of these women. So Frances knew these ladies, and she was at a tea party near the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire when they heard the bell clanging, the fire bell, And she said she already knew which building it was that would be on fire. She was just already sure. But I don't think when she rushed out of that house from the tea party and became a witness to this horror, 
that she had any idea how awful it was going to be. It was famously horrible because people had to jump to their deaths and they had to make that choice to burn alive or to jump to their deaths. And this is, I mean, obviously the most traumatizing to the people who died, but extremely traumatizing to all the witnesses there who saw and heard uh, and even were spattered sometimes with um, people (laughs) falling from this building. And Frances was one of the, one of the witnesses and this galvanized her. She, she says often that uh, the new deal was born that day. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a bit of a rhetorical flourish on her part because she really was already passionate about this. However, she was already involved in some romances at that time. So she was considering, you know, stepping back and living a normal life. So I think for her, this was the catalyst that told her, this is your life's work. God put you here to witness this horrible thing for a reason. So even if you do get married, you're not let off the hook. You have to fix this. And she uh, was a very religious person. So she took this as a spiritual mission and she ran with it the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all this, it's all leading up to 1933. She is named the Secretary of Labor for President Roosevelt. Was there a lot of backlash to this appointment? Were people shocked? Because it also seemed like presidents had been promising to put, you know, a woman in a position like this for a while, and he was just the first one to do it. What was the reaction like, and what was was she working on? So the reaction probably could have been worse than it was, because as you mentioned, there, there was a desire and a thought that maybe a woman could be appointed um, in theory, right? But now now we're faced with the reality. And the reality is that FDR was the perfect person to do it. He um, he, he had a pre-existing relationship with Frances, and she was largely considered to be the most qualified woman for any governmental position. So it was a natural fit in that way. However, uh, the labor movement was horrified. She was not a member of, of she was not a a labor union leader. um, So they did not want her. And also labor uh, was led mostly by what they would say were big he-men at the time. Um, And so the last thing they wanted was a lady in charge. And then, you know, there was a lot of backlash across the country you had people writing to her, like, I supported FDR, but I never thought he'd do something so foolish as to, you know, nominate you, a woman. This is a terrible time to have you in this role. Um, and then, of course, you have the more insidious sexism that just ate away at her for 12 years. There was always someone gunning for her. She was really, um, you know, you the country quite often gets into a burn the witch mentality. They pick a target. Uh, they um, they go after, they try to find flaws. And Francis was uh, the, the most visible woman uh, in America who was in any position of political power. So um, it was natural for her to become a lightning rod. And, and she did. Uh, they even tried to impeach her which is something I I didn't end up getting into in the book because 
I ended the story before all that happened, but I will say it did not succeed, but it, it did, um, it did do a lot of emotional damage to her. Yeah. And so the new deal is obviously a, a massive program with all these different avenues and all these different organizations. What are one or two of the things that Francis was really dedicated to working on? Um, you know, I'm glad you asked that too, because as I was shaping the book, I was so overwhelmed with the number of priorities that she had and the, the, the number of pies her fingers were in that I, I wasn't sure what to focus on. And so the original draft of this book was a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> and I had to cut out quite a bit. And then I had to really think about um, what was the most important thing to Francis. And although Francis probably would not have set, known at the time which thing was going to be the most successful, it was very clear that the, the thing that would make the biggest impact was Social Security. And she advocated that from the first day that FDR asked her to be Secretary of Labor. And out of the huge ambitious list of priorities that she gave to him, it was the only one that he said, no, Francis, that's crazy. We're not doing that. Uh, so it always makes me laugh that that ends up being really the keystone accomplishment of his domestic agenda, mm-hmm. uh, something that transformed the nation for the next hundred years. Um, well, almost hundred years. We're not quite there yet. Uh, and and I and I I just uh, it makes me tickled that that he he thought it was nuts and that that's that's his crowning achievement now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I would also like to ask about her relationship with other women, because at some point her personal life, you know, her husband is in an asylum and she has these two women that she ends up living with. And there's been some speculation that it's romantic. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, this was a real challenge for me because I am acutely aware that Frances is um, often considered an icon for LGBTQ, uh, for the, that community. And um, there is some reason to think that she may have been having um, a romantic or sexual relationship with women. Um, I wished that sh- I found more. <laughs> because I, I think I really would have liked to explore that. Um, Unfortunately, um, Frances was a very private person and really covered her tracks about anything having to do with her private life, including even her her love of her husband. Um, She'll claim things like she doesn't even remember how they met. There's no way this woman does not remember how she (laughs) met. But I I really struggled with this, and ultimately. the reason I I didn't delve into it and I I left it ambiguous so that the readers could draw their own conclusion. Uh, I did this because Frances talked about the fact that she was acutely aware that people were always trying to catch her doing something scandalous and she would never, ever give them that satisfaction. And the time period that people think she would have been having these affairs was when she was secretary of labor 
And first of all, I don't know where the woman had the time to brush her teeth, much less <laughs> have a romantic relationship. But this is the this is hard for me to believe that she would take this kind of risk. And and also she was married and she's extremely religious. <laughs> and so I would have to be saying in the book that I believe that she was an adulteress. Mm. And that's something that I I wouldn't do unless I had some kind of strong historical evidence Uh, and I didn't so I'm gonna take her at her word Mm -hmm. and that was the decision I made but if somebody else wants to write a different version of this I would eat that up (laughs) (laughs) that's that's something Katie and I grapple with a lot on the show posthumously assigning someone a label Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they didn't have the terminology that we would like to use today. So right. yeah, I was, I'm always curious about that with these figures when you're writing a historical fiction, especially because like, it would be so fun to like really dive into that. And- <laughs> it would be. And you know, historical fiction can go where historians cannot. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's totally fair game. Um, for me and the kinds of books that I write about historical figures, I'm pretty careful when it comes to any any figure that I consider a founding figure of the United States, because those people are people who are still influencing the direction of our democracy to this day. Mm-hmm. People are still fighting over Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. So and and what their words mean for how we're going to live our lives today. The Supreme Court doesn't even want to you know know what the current legislators meant when they drafted a law they want to know what would James Madison have said so so when it comes to those figures I personally try not to speculate as much as I think I really should be allowed to yeah (laughs) so I'm careful uh but I would not judge well yes I would not judge another author if they want to <laughs> right. that line. Yeah. So what what is your favorite thing about Francis? Just the thing that you found or when you researched, you were like, oh, that tickles me pink. I love it. The most fun I had was discovering that this is really an enemies to lovers story. And I don't mean that in the typical romantic sense where uh, Francis was not in love with FDR and he was not in love with her, at least not in, in a, a romantic sense. But these are two people who were political soulmates <laughs> and they did not start out that way. When they first met, she thought he was an idiot and he was just this rich, snobby jerk and she really wanted nothing to do with him. And he thought she was this stuck up, priggish social reformer humorless and so the two of them you know really butted heads and I had so much fun realizing uh the kind of arguments that they had and how little respect she had for him (laughs) watch this this you know oil and vinegar (laughs) relationship develop over time uh until it made a wonderful salad (laughs) (laughs) they um when they really clicked they clicked and and they had a great sense of humor together she could always make him laugh he made her laugh um and really 
it's one of the great political marriages in history and together they changed the world. You can't ask more from a romance than that. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> and how did you find the research for this book? Was it easy to kind of get the facts and a little bit harder to get really into who Francis was as a person? Did you have a source that really stood out to you as being really helpful? Yeah, this, um, so this book, I wanted, I don't want to say it was easier to research because it was quite difficult. <laughs> However, I started this book in at the height of the pandemic, which meant that I couldn't really travel to um, libraries to look at primary sources until much later in the process than I normally would. Um, but fortunately, Columbia University had digitized Francis's oral history. So I got to, I couldn't listen to her, you know, um, narrate her life, but I did get to read how she narrated her professional life. She didn't share many personal details, but just hearing the things that the tangent she would go off on or the little jokes she would tell, or when I would see her be sarcastic, um, that gave me a richer version of the person than I would otherwise have. Mm -hmm. And also this was the first time I have ever had a recording of the heroine I was writing about. So I got to actually hear her speak in her sort of interesting New England, very affected accent. Uh, and that was super fun. And so those were the kinds of research that uh, are kinds of sources that um, led me to be able to flesh her out. Mm. So this book comes out on March 12th? Yes. Okay. Can you tell people where they can find it, where they can find you and your other books for our friends who are obsessed with Eliza Hamilton and <laughs> Jefferson. And can you tell them where you are on socials and all the things so they can find you and get ready to learn more about Francis? Okay. Here are all the things. <laughs> First of all, you will be able to find uh, Becoming Madam Secretary wherever books are sold. You can buy it um, in audio or ebook or hardcover. And I am just as happy either way. <laughs> you do, you do. Um, as far as being in contact with me, I have a really fun historical book of the month club newsletter uh, that I send out to all my readers. And it's a great way to keep in touch. And to sign up for that, go to stephaniedre.com. And if you sign up, you get a free book story and I give out free books every single month and you'll be able to keep up with my next books or sales on my previous books so I hope you will be in touch that that way I'm also on Facebook and Instagram perfect well thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Frances Perkins she has definitely made it on our list I'm ashamed that we haven't covered her yet on the show <laughs> It's, there's so many women. There's so many women. <laughs> I know, but remember, she's the most important American. Yes, important woman in That's American correct. history. Yeah. You know, That's correct. I'll, I'll fight anybody who says otherwise. <laughs> I don't know. I'm covering June Carter Cash this Ooh. evening. So <laughs> well, I do like June, yeah. but <laughs> But she did not personally rescue my family. Yeah. So. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> that I know of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. And we can't wait to have you on again for your next book. Thank you. Take care, ladies. <laughs> Bye. 
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.